Well, church, it is 2020. Welcome. You made it. You arrived. It's a new year. Uh, time for new beginnings with things, new resolutions that you'll keep for the next week or so. And uh, uh, hopefully you already haven't broken some of your New Year's re- uh, resolutions, but maybe you have. Uh, but also with the new year comes a new uh, sermon series, a new book of the Bible that we're going to be preaching uh, uh, together through. So for the last couple of years, we were going through the gospel according to Mark. And uh, this morning, we're going to start in the book of Esther. And so if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Esther. Uh, if you open up your Bible uh, right in the middle, you're probably going to hit the Psalms, and then you go to the left, and uh, Esther is right after Ezra and Nehemiah. It's right before Job and the Psalms and the Proverbs. It's in the Old Testament. If you, if you have, if you picked up one of the church Bibles, one of the, those blue church Bibles, it's on page 451. Uh, if you have your own Bible, I do not know what page it is on. And it's a new year, but I will still make those old jokes that I have in the past. So, uh, but page 451, go ahead and open up uh, to the book of Esther. Well, growing up, one of my favorite books to get from the library at school uh, was the Where's Waldo books. Okay, the Where's Waldo books. How many of you remember the Where's Waldo books? You remember this, right? Okay. Uh, How many of you have a Where's Waldo book still at your house? Yes, still have some of those out there. Okay. Uh, And for those of you that aren't familiar, you might be familiar with the the British version of, uh, the British version was Wally. Where's Wally? Uh, Now, I I think Waldo is better. I think the American version was better, Uh, you know, in general, right? The American version is better, but either Where's Wally or Where's Waldo? Uh, And Waldo, he wore kind of this red and white striped shirt, right? He had a little toboggan hat on and he had glasses. And the goal of the books was to try to find him on every page. But it was sometimes challenging to find him, right? And that was part of the fun of it. It, The the page would be full of stuff. It would be very just busy and cluttered with people and things. And and, uh, and it would be challenging to try to find Waldo on, on each page. And on some of the most difficult pages, right, like if you got some of the really challenging pages, you could even start to get discouraged and really wonder if Waldo was even on that page, right? I mean, I just remember getting discouraged and thinking, man, is he even in here, right? And so if you've been looking at a Where's Waldo page for like 30 minutes and you can't find Waldo, the the first thing you should do is uh, just confirm, you should make sure that you are in fact reading a Where's Waldo uh, book, right? That's step one, okay? Like uh, some of of the I Spy books and all these other books, they're not going to have Waldo in them, right? So the first step is to confirm that you are looking at a Where's Waldo book, okay? Uh, But then once that's confirmed... If you look at the page, eventually, with enough time and with enough persistence, you will find him, right? He he is there. We know because it's a Where's Waldo book, we know that Waldo is going to be there somewhere. Now this morning, we are starting a new sermon series where we're going to preach through the book of Esther. 
And if you've started reading Esther on your own, which I would encourage you to, and if you haven't already, that's okay, uh, but go read Esther on your own over the next few weeks. It's a, it's a very, it's a short book. There's 10 chapters. Uh, we're going to preach about 10 sermons through it. And really, you could read it in about 30 minutes if you sat down and wanted to read the whole story. And so uh, you'll notice, though, once you read the story of Esther, uh, what you will notice is that God is not mentioned on any page in Esther. There's, there's no talk of prayer. There's no mention of Jesus. There's no prophecy. There's no extravagant miracles. And at first read, you could be like, wait a minute, like, am I still reading the Bible? Like, is this the Bible? How did this story of Esther get in the Bible? Like, there's no mention of God anywhere. What am I reading? It's such a unique and kind of a different type of book that's a part of the scriptures. Maybe, maybe you're reading Esther and maybe you think it's like one of those 3D books that you have to like cross your eyes and start close. And then like, as you you get it, then you see kind of like that 3D image pop out, right? You guys know, you remember those books? Um, uh, maybe that's what you kind of thought you're doing with Esther. Like, I don't see God in this anywhere. What is going on? There's no mention of God. There's no mention of prayer. This is this what's what's going on. And here's why Esther is so cool and such a unique and why uh, a unique book and why I think it's valuable and profitable to teach through this book just as much as it is any other book in the Bible. Uh, because, listen, the way that it is written the way that Esther is written, what it is, is it's an invitation to us. It's an invitation to us to look for God on every page. I mean, we read other books in the Bible, like we read about the Red Sea being parted, and it's obvious that God was there, right? We, we read about Lazarus being raised from the dead, and it's obvious that God was there. In Esther... We read about a drunken king. We read about a beauty pageant that's a little more than actually just a beauty pageant. And I'll, I'll try to stay as PG-13 as I can in an R-rated story, okay? I'll try to be delicate, but, but we, we read about some strange things in this book, right? A beauty pageant that's a little more than a beauty pageant. We read about a, a wicked person try, attempting to annihilate God's people, and all throughout this story, we are invited to see that in the midst of these things, in the midst of these things, even with no mention or acknowledgement of God, God is there. God is there. And so my invitation to you this morning is for the next uh, few months it is to sit in this story, to sit in this text, and to ask the Spirit to help you see God on every page. All right, I want you to come before the, the text this morning and as you read it on your own and as you discuss it in city group, and, and I want you to ask the Spirit to help you see God on every page. But then we're not going to stop there, okay? We're not going to stop with just asking God to, to show Him, uh, you know, for us to see him on every page. Uh, because not only do you need to see God on every page in this book, but I'm inviting you to see God on every page of your life. 
This is an invitation to see God on every page of your life. Because if we are honest, there are certain days, maybe not Sundays, right? Sundays when we come to church, you know, it's, it kind of, you know, it seems like a special day. But, but there are certain days throughout your week. There are certain months in your year. There are certain years in your life that it is really difficult to see God on that page of your life. And so my prayer for us is that, that we would, as we see God on every page in the story of Esther, that we would also live in the reality that the presence of God has been on every page of our lives. And a, and a common theme or a common doctrine that we'll be learning as we go throughout this book is the doctrine of God's providence. God's providence. And the most, the most concise, uh, helpful definition of God's providence that I've heard so far, and I'll, I'll keep you updated as we're studying God's providence the next few weeks, but a concise definition of providence, which we'll have up on the screen, is that providence is God's gracious oversight of the universe. Providence is God's gracious oversight of the universe. Now, now that's concise. If you want a little longer explanation to understand really God's providence, uh, it, then it's helpful to understand that God's providence is really a combination of four other truths or attributes of God. And so when you think about the providence of God, uh, you can think of it consisting in these four things that we'll have up there on the screen, all right? So when you think of God's providence, uh, I want you to think about his sovereignty, right? That he is in control. That is part of what we talk about, his gracious oversight of the universe, that he is sovereign. He is in control. I want you to think about the concept of predestination or, or that he is in charge of how everything turns out, right? Things are not left up to chance or to fate or to luck, right? But, but, but that he, God is in charge of how everything turns out. When you think about providence, I want you to think about God's wisdom, that he makes no mistakes. He makes no mistakes. And when we talk about God's providence, we need to be reminded of his goodness, that he has his people's best interest at heart. Okay, so when we're talking about God's gracious oversight of the universe, I think these four things help us really kind of understand and encapsulate what we talk about when we're seeing God's providence, that he is in control, that he is in charge, that he does not make any mistakes, and that he has his people's best interest at heart. And really, the, the story of Esther is really a real-life example of the truth that Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 8.28. And so, Kevin, if you've got Romans 8.28, Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Esther is a a real-life example, an illustration of this truth that Paul writes to the Romans. And so let's, uh, we're, we're going to jump into Esther. Uh, this morning will be some, some intro and kind of setting the stage, uh, but we'll get through a, a, a few verses. Uh, but let's stop once again and let's pray. And let's ask God to help us uh, see him on every page. And then we'll, and then we'll jump in. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we have access to it. 
We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And so, Lord, we ask as we, as we, we ask for your help as we come to it this morning. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would give us eyes to see your working on every page of this story. I ask that you would help us see it pointing to Jesus on every page of this story. And I ask that the, the preaching and the receiving of this word, I ask that, that it would be profitable, that it would be fruitful, that it would transform us. I ask that these would not be my words, but that these would be your words. And so please guide us into your truth. Keep me from saying any error or anything that is false. Keep, um, keep our people from believing any, any lie. But we ask that your, your truth would be proclaimed and cherished in this time. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's look at Esther 1, verse 1. <clears throat> Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, let's stop there for a second. That's not how I would normally pronounce that, right? I think most of us would read it as like Ahasuerus or something like that. But, but actually, like the Hebrew, how you're, my, my best attempt at it is Ahasuerus. And I, I realize that's probably a bad, a bad attempt, but, but I'm trying, okay? So let's, let's first kind of clear up the name a little bit, okay? Ahashverosh is how it would be pronounced in Hebrew, and a Hebrew uh, would hear this as uh, it would sound like King Headache, okay? King Headache. And much of this story is, is to kind of conjure up some laughter. And so it's okay, right? right? Like some of this, this is, a, this is a fun, this is an engaging story. And so in the Hebrew, it was pronounced Ahash uh, Verosh, and it sounded like King Headache. Uh, but, uh, but he is better known as his Greek and Persian name, uh, which is Xerxes. Okay, Xerxes. Maybe you've heard of Xerxes before. This is King Xerxes. That's who we're talking about. And so for the sake of not spitting on the first two rows uh, throughout this whole story, I will probably refer to him as Xerxes most of the time, uh, as opposed to uh, trying to pronounce what I just pronounced. Okay, so let's understand. This is the first character we're being introduced to, okay, Xerxes. And Xerxes was in the line of the kings of Persia, or also known as the Mede and the Persian Empire. Okay, Cyrus the Great was the first king of the Persian Empire, and he had conquered the Babylonians. Okay, so let's think back a little bit more. <clears throat> it was the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, right, who destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took the people of God into exile. Okay, then Cyrus the Great of the Persian Empire comes along and conquers the Babylonians. Okay, then Cyrus makes a decree that you can read about in Ezra chapter one, that whoever wants to go back to Jerusalem and to start working on the temple can go and the Persian empire is going to finance that. And so we see people like Zerubbabel, which is another fun word, uh, and others, they go back to Jerusalem to start working on the temple. They meet some opposition. Things don't go exactly the way they had planned, but then the temple is finally finished under King Darius. 
Darius, okay, who comes after Cyrus the Great, King Darius. And then after King Darius is Xerxes, who we're talking about in this story. And then after Xerxes is Artaxerxes, uh, who that is who Nehemiah was the cupbearer to, okay? So if you're wanting to read the Bible chronologically, the story of Esther really fits in between Ezra chapter 6 and 7. Okay, the, the temple is being rebuilt, rebuilt, but Nehemiah hasn't yet gone back to build the walls of Jerusalem. Okay, so, so it's important for you to understand some Jews have gone back to Jerusalem, but many have not. Many have decided to stay and enjoy Persian life. Okay, so people have been sent back to Jerusalem, but some have stayed. And here we have Esther and uh, Mordecai who will meet in, in the upcoming sermons. They have decided to stay and uh, stay and enjoy the Persian Empire. And so the story of Esther, it covers about a 10-year period from uh, 483 B.C. to 473 B.C., okay? And I promise it's, it, this morning is not going to be just all history class, but we have to set the scene a little bit here, okay? Look back at verses uh, 1 and 2. <clears throat> Xerxes, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, Two in the, uh, excuse me, in those days when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Okay, so this is, uh, this is giving you an idea about how much of the world Xerxes ruled over, okay? And uh, we have a, a map here to kind of demonstrate that as well. Okay, this is the, the, the land of the Medes and the Persian Empire. And uh, there you see uh, Susa, which was the wintertime capital. But really, it was, it was much of the known world that Xerxes kind of ruled over. I mean, from India to Ethiopia to, to modern-day Turkey to Jerusalem, this was a large portion of the known world. And we see that King Xerxes is really power-hungry for more, and he's going to attempt some battles with Greece, which will not be successful. And eventually, some years down the road, the Persian Empire is finally going to fall and be overtaken by, by Greece, by Alexander the Great. Okay, so that's kind of where we're at in, in history. And the story of Esther is taking place in the city of Susa, which was one of the, the, one of the capitals. It was the wintertime capital uh, and, uh, of the Persian Empire. And that is in modern-day Iran. Okay, which is interesting because I did not plan this, but yes, Iran has been in the news recently. This is actually where our story is taking place, and we're going to see that God is at work even right in Iran, in Susa. So that's where this story is going to take place. Look at, look at verse 3 in Esther 1, verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. And while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Now, this is a long party, okay? Some of you couldn't even make it till midnight on New Year's Eve, right? This is a long party. This is 180 days. This is a six-month party. 
Okay, a six-month party where Xerxes has gathered all of the bigwigs of the empire. He's gathered all the leaders, and he's gathered them together to, to really kind of flex his muscle and show off his splendor. How rich he is, how powerful he is, how important he is. And, and that was important. This was important to the empire to keep people loyal to the empire, to show them just how powerful they were. And, and, and by doing so, they made sure all these other leaders would want to be a part of it. Like, right, wouldn't you want to be a part of an empire who, who, who gives you a six-month party and has all this power and importance and land and money and all these things? And historians also tell us in this six-month party that it was likely the time of, of Xerxes gathering kind of a war council as well, okay? So all the leaders are there, they're partying, they're enjoying good food, good drink, uh, but Xerxes is also using this to kind of shore up some allegiances in the empire to say, hey, hey, let's make sure when it's time to go to war in Greece that you are with me, right? Like, don't, don't forget I gave you a six-month party a year from now when I say it's war time, right? He's counting on these people being allegiant to him. Uh, and, he, you know, if they're not, he'll bring up that six-month party he threw for them, right? Okay. <clears throat> Verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Okay, so after the six-month party for all the leaders, he gives a seven-day party for all the citizens of the city, which in comparison to six months seems like not much, but in re it's still a seven-day party, all right? So we won't, we won't feel too bad for them. Uh, he's still, you know, he was trying to get the people in the city uh, to, for them to see his power and his magnificence and his importance and all these things. Look at verse 6. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones, right? If you're not excited about all those stones, talk to geologist John after the service. He's getting excited, I can tell. All right, verse 7. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Wow, what a party. This is, this is some scene that is being set for us. Okay, and, and the author of Esther, which we don't know for sure who wrote the book of Esther. We obviously know that it was inspired by, by God. It was breathed out by God. But as far as the human who penned it, uh, we, we, we don't know for sure. Many think that it was Mordecai. Uh, but whoever the author was, uh, the scene that the author is setting is such an elaborate scene. This is, this is the scene that's being set, okay? Essentially, this is the most powerful person in the world throwing the most elaborate party in the world to show off his power, his riches, and to flex his muscle, 
Okay, that's the scene that's being set for us in Esther. It's the most powerful person in the world throwing the most elaborate party in the world to show off his power and his riches and to flex his muscle. I mean, the riches of the Persian Empire were unparalleled. Okay, we, we know from historians that when Alexander the Great finally conquers uh, the Persian Empire, when, they, when, the, his, when Alexander the Great would, would capture like military outposts, uh, he would always be stunned and enthralled that he would find golden couches in the tents of the military leaders of the Persian Empire. Like he would, he would go in like, like, like that's when you know you're rich, right? People don't just come in and find golden coins, uh, but they find golden couches, golden couches. I mean, that's, that's silly money. That's, that's you having so much gold, you don't know what to do with it. And so you just decide to make a futon for your military leaders on the front lines in tents, right? So they had golden couches they're being made and finding. So this is unparalleled types of wealth, okay, that the Persian Empire had. So what we should be seeing in, in these first eight verses is that this is a powerful man and this is a powerful empire. This is a powerful man, and this is a powerful empire, and Xerxes, by throwing this six-month party, is flexing for us. All right? He's flexing for us. And my question for you this morning is, what do you do, and how do you feel when the world flexes its power? What do you do, and how do you feel when the world flexes its power. Like whether it's, maybe it's a a military power, right? Whether it's a firing of missiles or making threats or declaring war, whether it's our leaders or other people's leaders, what do you do and how do you feel when that military power flexes its muscle? Or how, or how about this? Maybe, uh, maybe in more day-to-day life. What do you do and how do you feel when a boss flexes their muscle over you? We've all had bosses, right, that at, at times have done some things that essentially they're flexing their muscle. They're flexing their power. What do you do and how do you feel in those moments? Or how about this? What do you do and how do you feel when the popular cultural opinion flexes its power at you? Well, one thing we often do is we assimilate. We conform with whoever's flexing at us. You you see, part of the purpose of this six-month party was so that Xerxes could flex his power so that people would not rebel against the Persian Empire, but instead they would assimilate. They would conform to the Persian Empire. They see power being flexed, and, and we naturally just want to assimilate and conform to whoever's flexing their power. I mean, when you, when you would see the power and the wealth uh, of the, the Persian Empire, one of the common responses, right, it's to assimilate. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of such a popular and such a powerful empire? You see, the, the Persian Empire, this was one of their main ways of kind of growing into such a big empire was assimilating and having people conform to them. And, and you see, they were very much, they were very under, they, excuse, let me reword that. Uh, they were much more understanding than the Babylonians were before them. 
okay? So the Persians, in regards to religion, the people groups that they would conquer and that they would have in their empire, they would many times allow them to keep their own religions and to keep their little lowercase gods that they worshipped so long as they also assimilated and conformed to Persian culture and also worshipped the gods of Persia. Now, this wasn't a problem for most people. Most people were happy with, okay, yeah, I'll keep my little gods that I worship, but I'll also conform to the Persian Empire. I'll assimilate in. It wasn't a problem for most people. This was a problem for the people of God, though. Because they were just supposed to worship the one and true God and to have no other gods or idols before him that they would worship. And what I want you to see is I I think you'll see throughout this series how, how Susa and how the Persian Empire has a lot of similarities to the culture we currently live in. Because in our culture, people are very pro freedom of religion, right? Which is is a good thing. Everyone is good with, hey, you kind of have what you worship. I have what I'll worship, right? Whether it's Jesus or whether it's Buddha or whether it's like essential oils or something like this, right? Like you kind of do what you want to do and it's all good. Like everyone is good with us worshiping Jesus as kind of one of the options that we all have to worship. But here's where the culture will flex its power at you. If you don't conform and assimilate, and you say that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life, to have an exclusive belief about something is in general not tolerated by our culture. And so when the current cultural climate flexes its power, what do we see many people do? They assimilate. They they ignore God's word and instead are more fearful of this cultural power or this secularism, right, that they see being flexed at them and therefore they assimilate, they conform. I mean, just look around you and you'll see this happening. When the world flexes, people are more enthralled by the world's power than they are by God's power, and they are quick to assimilate with the culture around them. Another thing we do when the world flexes its power is we can often fall into despair. When we see the world flex its power, we can often fall into despair. When Christians in America see their political influence decreasing and their political power decreasing, and we see secularism kind of flex its power, what do many Christians do? They despair and they freak out. Like, oh, here it goes. We're going downhill. This thing's spiral, spiraling out of control, right? Like, I mean, this is, this is awful. I knew if we let rock music in, this was going to happen, right? And, uh, and I'm not trying to pick on a certain generation, but you do hear it from a certain generation. And, uh, and it's just kind of like this doom and gloom, like, man, like, like everything is headed downhill. This is, this is out of control. Uh, I'm just glad Billy Graham's not here to see this, like what's happening, right, in our country. And it's this despair, right? It's this, it's this, we hear this despair from many people in the church when they see the world flex its power. We despair. 
And when we despair, we are essentially believing the lie that when the world flexes, God's providence isn't still in effect. As if the world flexing means that God's power is any less. But we believe that lie. Like all of a sudden, when we see the world's power flex, we all of a sudden believe the lie that maybe God's no longer sovereign, right? Maybe, maybe he's no longer in control. Maybe he's no longer in charge of how this is going to turn out. Maybe he's no longer all, all wise, and maybe he is making some mistakes, or maybe he's no longer good. Maybe he no longer has our best interest at heart. Maybe Romans 28 isn't still true, right? These are things, lies that we believe when we see the world flex its power and we despair, or, or maybe you don't despair when you think about politics, okay? But what about when your boss shows off their power over you? Do you despair? Do you feel helpless? Do you fear that your future is held by a powerful, a selfish, and an incompetent boss? Do you despair and fear that when you see someone in authority over you when they flex their muscle, do you despair thinking that they are the ones that hold your future in their hands? What about the mob of popular opinion? When they turn against you, do you despair? Do you fear that your acceptance and your safety and your future are held by the power of people's opinion of you? And if their opinion of you were to go down, do you despair that no longer you will have acceptance and safety and a good future? Listen, church, when the powers of the world flex, you will have to decide who you are going to trust. When the powers of the world flex, you are going to have to decide who you are going to trust. Are you going to trust your feelings in that moment, or are you going to trust God's providence? That he's in control, that he's in charge, that he doesn't make mistakes, that he has your best interests in mind. When the powers of the world flex, are you going to trust your feelings or are you going to trust his providence? And maybe it would be helpful to see how God responds when the powers of the world flex. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. It's just to the right, uh, a couple of books, okay? Psalm chapter 2. And uh, uh, the Lord brought me to this, uh, this psalm in one of my uh, just times spending in prayer with him as I was kind of wrestling with, it's easy for me to think about how I respond when the world flexes, right? But how does God respond? And look at Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He who sits in the heavens 
laughs. He laughs. The kings of the earth, right, they take counsel together. They're going to get all organized to flex their power. And the Lord, the one who sits in the heavens, he laughs. He laughs. And this reminded me... often when I get my boys uh, dressed, okay? Uh, Mainly Jordy and Joel now. The older two are pretty self-sufficient getting dressed, but Jordy is three, Joel is one. I still usually need to help them kind of get dressed and undressed. And so usually when I take off the shirt, I always am like, oh, let me see those muscles, right? Let me see those muscles, Jordy. And so Jordy will usually flex like, you show his muscles. And I usually laugh. Not because I'm making fun of him, right? Okay, it's a little different. Not because I'm making fun of him, but because it's cute to see such a small human being with such small arms and, and such small muscles, like flex. And when Jordy flexes, listen, I'm not intimidated by that. Like I am when Brittany flexes, right? No, I'm just kidding. She's over there. All right, I don't think she's here. <coughs> But I'm not intimidated when Jordy flexes because his strength is nowhere close to my strength, right? Or, or you think about the, the, the flex cam. Uh, if you go to a, a, a sporting event or event, right, the big screen, it's got the flex cam. Uh, I, I think, you know, one of the ways you can see the difference between men and women is just to see how they respond to the flex cam. Uh, usually the guys are watching the flex cam and they're like, oh, I could take that guy. I could take him. I could take, nope, I probably couldn't take that guy, right? Uh, and, and girls are more like trying to like get a, an Instagram picture of them on the flex cam or something like that, right? Uh, but, but think about that. Like when you're watching the flex cam, like uh, usually if there's like kids up there, you're like, oh yeah, I'm not intimidated, not intimidated, not intimidated. Oh, that, yeah, I'm kind of intimidated. Like, I wouldn't mess with him. Uh, but we laugh because uh, that, the, the strength is, is there's so, such a difference there, right? I'm not intimidated by Jordy when he flexes. And I have to think that even to a greater degree, that this is the case when the powers of the world flex their muscle. God laughs. Probably not as in an endearing way, like I laugh at my son, but he laughs, right? The, the strength difference between the world flexing and God flexing is so astronomical. Like God is not impressed or intimidated when his creation flexes. Like, really, Xerxes? Oh, that's nice. You've got a throne in Susa. Yeah. I'm not impressed. I sit on a throne in the heavens, right? Not impressed there. Really, Xerxes, couches made of gold. That's, that's cute. Like, that's what my roads are paved with, right? Gold, right? Or, or, or really, Xerxes, like six months to proclaim your glory. How about this? Since the beginning of the world, creation has proclaimed my glory. So look back at Psalm 2. Let's read the rest of the psalm, starting in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So church, here's what we need to remember. A flexing of the world's power does not mean a lessening of God's. Okay? A flexing of the world's power does not mean a lessening of God's power. North Korea displaying its power by launching missiles does not mean that God is any less powerful. Your boss displaying their power by treating you unfairly does not mean that God is any less powerful. The popular cultural opinion, the social media mob displaying its power by maybe filing lawsuits against your business or slandering you on social media, that does not mean that God is any less powerful. So when the world flexes its power, who will you trust? Your feelings or God's providence? And if it's your feelings, you will likely either assimilate and conform with whoever is flexing, or you will fall into despair. But when you trust in God's providence and his faithfulness that he will do what he says he will do, then you will be a part of a group of people that Psalm 2 calls the blessed. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, the reason that we need to study Esther is is because it does not always feel like God is on every page of our lives. It does not always seem like he's the most powerful being in the universe. And I've, I've heard this illustration before. It's, it's been used a few different places. Maybe you've, you've heard it before. Uh, but I think it does help us uh, understand some truth that God wants to teach us through the book of Esther. And so I'm going to do a little experiment, and I realize I could be walking the borderline of this being cheesy, uh, but you'll just have to get over it, okay? I like cheese. I think uh, we remember cheesy things, but I, I realize this might feel maybe like youth group or be a little cheesy, but it's going to be some uh, good truth, okay? You guys ready? You all look a little nervous. Don't be this. That's okay. Uh, all right. These are my keys, all right? These are the keys to a sweet 2008 Chevy Impala parked at the food pantry, all right? Pretty awesome. All right, now I'm going to do an experiment, and I'm going to ask you a few questions, but throughout this whole experiment, my keys will be up in front of you, okay? My keys will be in front of you. So let's, let's start with an easy one. I want everyone to look up here at my keys, okay? And here's the first question. Where are my keys? Okay, yeah. Why do you know that? You can see them. Okay, all right, good. So far, so good. You guys are doing great. Okay, now we're going to do a little challenge, all right? Everyone, I want you to close your eyes, all right? Close your eyes. I promise nothing weird is going to happen, at least from me. I don't know who you're sitting next to. Uh, Okay, you got your eyes closed. Okay, where are my keys? Where are they at? In my hand. 
Uh, how do you know that? You can hear them. Good. All right. You guys are doing good. Okay. Everyone, uh, open up your eyes now. Okay. So you knew they were up front because you could hear them. Now, I was going to pick on dad, and uh, but dad's sick. You can be praying for him. Uh, so we'll pick on mom. Okay. So mom's going to close her eyes, and we know she has a bad startle, so no one likes sneak up on her, right? And she's going to reach out her hands. Okay. And now, mom, where are my keys? Oh, in my hands. Okay. And how do you know that? You can feel them. Okay. All right. All right. Now, everyone, close your eyes again. Everyone, reach out your hands. Okay. Where are my keys? <laughs> but where, okay, you know where they're not, but where are they? Where do, some people don't know. Some people know. Who, if you know where they are, say where, you, where they are. They're in my hands. How do you know that? Yeah. Okay. Open up your eyes. You see, many times, church, our life feels like the pages of Esther, and we have a hard time trusting that God is there. Because, you see, there will be times in our life when we won't be able to see him. There will be times in our life where we won't be able to hear him as clearly as we have before. And there will be times where we won't be able to feel him and experience him like some of those kind of sweet, intimate, close moments that we can have with the Lord. Those, those, things are, those times are so sweet when you can just tangibly kind of taste and see and feel the Lord. But many times in life, there are times when you can't. And there are many days where I cannot see him. I can't hear him as clearly as I have before, and I can't feel him. But I can trust that his presence is in my life, not because of my feelings, but because of his providence and what he has told us. And Jesus said that he would be with us always to the very end of the age. God said that he would never leave us or forsake us. God's gracious oversight of the universe will continue on. Even when the world flexes, God is still in control. Even when the world flexes, he is still in charge of how everything turns out. Even when the world flexes, he makes no mistakes. And even when the world flexes, he has our best interest at heart. When the world flexes its power, our God laughs. And if our God is still graciously overseeing the universe, then when the world flexes its power, we need not assimilate or conform. We need not despair. We need not trust our feelings, but we can instead trust in his providence and trust in his faithfulness. And that if he said he is with us, even if we can't see him or hear him or feel him, we trust that he is with us. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, I'm going to close the, the sermon part of our gathering, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to sing a couple of songs. 
But for those who are struggling with trusting his providence over your feelings, I'm going to be in the, the back, and this is something we as a church want to be more regular at. Um, I'm going to be in the back. If you want to come and pray, if you want me to pray with you or for you, like come to the back and pray. Anytime through the last couple of songs, uh, uh, come back and I'll be in the back and let's pray. If you want to grab a brother or sister and pray in that time, go do Go do that as well. Um, So let's pray, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together.